bless you all. Thank you so much for being here uh, with me in service today. Amen. God bless you guys. Uh, before we start, I would like to uh, greet our visitors today. Amen. We have, uh, they look like they're thrilled about it. <laughs> uh, Jason DeMuth is with us. As you may have surmised, uh, he is the son of Brother and Sister DeMuth. Uh, we're definitely not going to hold that against him. Amen. Amen. He's, he's, he's a really good guy. Amen. And his fiance is with us today, uh, Keisha Mallon. Mallon, all right. First try. Praise God. We are so thrilled that you're here with us today. Amen. Praise God. <coughs> Amen. And we're so thankful that all of you are here, the faithful saints of God. Amen. Faithfulness is key. We know that God is altogether faithful. He's faithful to each and every one of us. We also ought to be faithful to Him. Amen. In everything that we do for God, we need to be faithful to Him. Let's all stand. Let's call out on Jesus today in faith believing. He is already here. He desires to do a work in our midst. Amen. Uh, all we need to do is receive it. All we need to do is receive it by faith. Praise God. Whatever it is that he has for me today, man, I want it. I wanted something fierce. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. We laud and we magnify you. I am so thankful for you. You are the Lord. You are God. In this and in every place, you are altogether sovereign. This is your creation. Indeed, this is your church. This is your body here on earth. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would do here as seemeth good unto you. Because you are sovereign here, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would assume control of this service from this point forward. That you would work according to your perfect will. That you would work according to our desperate need in this place today. Hallelujah, Jesus. We laud and we magnify you. We heap glory and honor unto the Most High God in this place today. Because you are the King of Kings and you are the Lord of Lords. We desire for you to do a work here in our midst today. That all of your heart... All of your mind would be manifest in our services here today. And above all else, Lord Jesus, that your great and precious name would be glorified here. We worship you. We worship you because of who you are. We worship you because of your mighty acts. But we worship you today. We praise you. We laud and we magnify you. Because you alone are worthy to receive all worship and to receive all praise. You only are worthy to receive worship, thou most high God. You only are worthy to sit upon the throne. You only are worthy to open the Lamb's book of life. Only you are worthy. Hallelujah, Jesus. And so we worship you. And so we dedicate our lives to serve you. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us here today. In Jesus' name, praise God. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you. By way of review, uh, last week we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. There was a need that realistically most, if not all of them, could have met on their own. I don't doubt that many of them packed a lunch. We know that a little lad packed a lunch. Uh, I would surmise, although Scripture doesn't explicitly state it, that many of them packed a lunch. 
Or if they didn't, they had the means to go get some. They, they were going to eat sometime anyway, right? They could have got it on their own. But Jesus took ownership of this particular need. I believe for a couple reasons, maybe a few more. His compassion on the multitudes, his desire to meet our needs for us, to demonstrate something about who he is, that he wants to meet our needs, to demonstrate to his disciples something about who he was, and in turn, how he wanted them to be. And perhaps it was a test. A test for his disciples and a test for the crowd as well. Well, we know that Jesus met this need in in an impossible way. He creates something out of nothing. Jesus has never been nor will ever be bound to the same limitations that bind you and me. We are most certainly bound by many limitations. There are things, situations in our lives that are completely and hopelessly out of our control. We understand that. As a teenager, uh, maybe you don't understand that yet. When I was a teenager, I didn't have a clue. I thought I did. Uh, And then I got out there. And I got slapped around a little bit. I came, like, Mom, Dad, this isn't at all what I thought it was going to be. Well, maybe if you'd have listened... They said in so many loving words. I was ready to listen then. Better believe it. But those situations don't bind God. They don't surprise God. Uh, They don't scare God or intimidate God in any way. There doesn't have to be an answer to your situation. There doesn't have to be a solution to your problem for God to take care of it. It may be an impossible situation, but God can still very easily take care of it. The impossible happens to be his speciality. Jesus can create an answer where before there was no answer to be had. He can literally create something out of nothing. He can even create something good out of a horribly bad situation. He can even do that. We see that Jesus used others to accomplish his miracle. The lad who gave up his loaves and fishes. Andrew, who went around searching for food. The disciples, who he had organized the crowd into into groups. And then later used them to gather up the leftovers. When God does something... When God does anything, he wants to use his people in the middle of that. He doesn't just come down and and speak with people. Well, yeah, he does. But typically, it's to direct them to someone else. He spoke directly to Paul, but only to direct him to Ananias. He spoke directly to Cornelius, but only to direct him to Peter. And then they would explain what needs to happen. We hear of all kinds of testimonies of uh, Muslims in Muslim countries receiving visions and receiving dreams from Jesus. But to do what? To lead them to greater revelation. 
What miracle does God want to use us in? When we... The longer we live for God, I am of the opinion anyway, that if we are walking circumspectly and we're redeeming the time that He's given us, we should be drawing closer to Him. We should be becoming more like Him each and every day. That is the perfect will of God, after all. Uh, it, it's not like he's, he's trying to hinder that process in any way. He's trying to facilitate that in our lives. Uh, by any means necessary. By any means that, that makes itself available to us. And so, as we begin to grow in God and begin to understand more about who God is, that ought to build faith in us. When we begin to understand that God is infinitely powerful and yet loves me unconditionally with an agape love, then I begin to understand that all of those resources that are available to him are available to me for the advancement of his kingdom, for the glory of God, all of those things, but they are available to me. When I get into a situation that I cannot control, a circumstance that scares me to death, I can take a step back and realize I don't need to be afraid. I ought not be afraid. We'll talk more about that as the lesson progresses today. Daily devotions. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 sits squarely between two low points of Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 5, we see the crowd wanted to kill Jesus. In John chapter 6, toward the end of the chapter, we see the crowd abandoned Jesus because they could not accept his teachings. He was even questioning whether or not the disciples would stay with him. Will you leave me also? In a crowd of 5,000, only one boy was willing to let go of his lunch. I said this might be a test for the crowd. Well, if it was, they failed. We're here to receive, not give. How many people have that same attitude today? Jesus said of himself, I am not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. If we are to be Christ-like folks, we must adopt the same attitude. We're not here to be ministered unto. No, we're not God. There are times we're going to need to be ministered to. There are times where we are going to be weak, where we are going through situations, and we need strength, and we need encouragement from others. Absolutely. But our prime directive ought to be ministering to others. Focusing on the needs of others. Esteeming other better than myself. Not always take, 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 take. But give. Day one. In scripture we see people jumping on Jesus' bandwagon, so to speak. While he was popular. And when he started to become unpopular, the crowds kind of dwindled and left. 
At the end, people chose Barabbas to set free and to crucify Jesus. Because it was Barabbas, after all, that fed the 5,000 and healed all those sick people and spoke love and compassion to everybody, right? Wrong. Some, even today, certainly in uh, recent history, have followed and are following Jesus because it's popular to do so, at least amongst their circle of friends. It's becoming decidedly less popular today to follow Jesus, and I believe probably it will continue to follow that same trend. So what happens to these people when Jesus does become unpopular? Well, we know the answer, don't we? They jump on somebody else's bandwagon. We can't serve Jesus only when it's popular. We can't serve Jesus only when it suits us, when it's convenient. We serve Jesus because of what he's done, because of who he is. Day two, an account of miraculous provision from God to meet a need. God miraculously met this individual's need. God still creates something out of nothing today. Just kept putting money in that account until she no longer needed it. And he can do it for you. Now, is he going to answer this need this same way every single time? We understand that that's not the case. He can meet a need any way he wants to. From areas, from people that you would have never guessed. That's the God that we serve. Day three, the crowds that were following Jesus were following primarily for the miracles. Again, for what they could receive. They weren't interested in giving anything. But Luke chapter 6 teaches us something entirely different. We'll start reading in verse 30. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. That's pretty extreme. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? That's certainly not what I want to do. Get a job, you bum. Get your own stuff. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what think of ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what think of ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. That's a great preaching point, isn't it? Everybody gets real excited about this verse, don't they? But how does it start? Give. We forget about that part. We just want to skip to the pressed down, shaken together, 
shall men give into your bosom. That's the part we want. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. It starts with us, folks. We are the ones who are authorized to initiate. If we want the promise to come to pass in our lives, we have to initiate. We must first give, and then it shall be given to you. If we can't give, folks, then we have what we have. You can hoard, you can save, you can do what you want with it. But according to the Scriptures, if I open my hand, it can be taken, but then God can also put back in. Don't close it. Therefore, look at the people Jesus called to be His disciples. Those that would form His church. Those that would turn the world upside down. Let's look at them for a second, shall we? These powerful, mighty men of God. Once in, a, once in, a, in, in the history of the human race, these people. Right? A tax collector. Two brothers who were focused on being number one. A spokesman of weak character who spoke first and thought later. He appointed someone who had a problem handling money as the group treasurer. And he later stabbed him in the back. But this is who Jesus was given to use. And he used them. And he taught them. And he discipled them. And ultimately, he was able to trust them with growing and administrating his church after he left. And they did. They did, through God, turn the world upside down. These imperfect, weak men that God began to work with and to use and to love and to correct and to train to do his bidding. We must do the same with imperfect, weak men and women like you and like me. I was no prize when I came to God. I'll tell you that right now. I'm never going to get into specifics, but just know there was nothing anybody would have seen. But God saw something. Amen. That's one of so many reasons that I will always be so thankful. God revealed himself to me one day. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Day five. We don't see miracles from God simply so we can benefit from them. We understand that intellectually. We know that the scriptures teach that. And yet we do like to receive, don't we? Nothing wrong with that. I like to receive. Comes time to celebrate my birthday month. I like to receive gifts. Amen. All month long. Praise God. (laughs) But the miracles that we receive, they are meant primarily to lead others to Him. To testify about who God is. What He's capable of doing in somebody else's life. Amen. If Jesus has done a miracle in your life, tell others about it. With the intent that they too might experience Him the exact same way that you have. Maybe even better than you have. 
He's an infinite God. And we can experience Him all kinds of ways in many different avenues. Praise God. Our scripture text today is going to be found in the book of John, chapter 6. Last week we read 1 through 15. Today we're going to read 16 through 21. Our lesson is entitled, Walking on Water. Walking on Water. Beginning with verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Amen. Shipwrecks form the stuff of legend. One of the most well-known and researched shipwrecks came from the largest cargo ship in the Great Lakes, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Anyone hear the song? Yeah. I heard it a lot growing up. My dad loved it. For 13 years, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. Some photos make it appear to be two ships, but it was just one. The Edmund Fitzgerald was an all-star. The ship and its crew made 748 round trips in its storied 17-year career. It was built to haul iron ore from Wisconsin to Detroit. But something happened on November 10, 1975, that even the experts cannot explain. Lake Superior turned from friend to foe and turned on the ship. Hurricane-force winds beat up the nearly 30,000-ton freighter. As an aside, that's got to be some pretty strong winds to buffet 30,000 tons around. And the churning waves tossed it around like a ball. Captain McSorley radioed for help to a nearby freighter, quote, I have a bad list, both, lost both radars, unquote. They were, only 17 miles from the, they were only 17 miles from the shore, and on a calm day, they'd have made that shore trip in an hour. But this day was not calm. This day, the lake appeared angry, and by the end of that day, Lake Superior had claimed the lives of all 29 crew members and the largest ship on the Great Lakes. The shipwreck was storied. It, in, it inspired Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, shipwrecks from the stuff of legend, because even the most seafaring sailors can find themselves in grave danger and sadly, even in the grave, when the waters turn angry and turn on a ship in the middle of the water. The Great Lakes turned on the Edmund Fitzgerald, much like the Sea of Galilee turned on the disciples' modest fishing boat. All right, so the disciples had just come to the end of another wonderful, wonder-filled day. Jesus had fed a city with a lunchable. After he fed their stomachs, he fed their souls. He preached to them. The crowd was restless, ready for a Messiah. And they knew, they just knew, this Jesus was the king they were waiting for. But Jesus slipped out and went back into the mountain before they could crown him king. He sent his disciples into a boat to sail to the other side of the sea. He'd meet up with them later. The boat ride started out like any other. Calm journey. They'd done it a thousand times. Some of these guys were fishermen. They'd been out here a lot. They knew it. They knew the sea. They knew the boat. This was easy. But very quickly, they found themselves in the middle of a fishing boat, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a hurricane. Without warning. It just, boom. Now, 
Unfortunately, this wasn't their first rodeo. They'd experienced this before, haven't they? Mark chapter 4. Look that up. This time looks a lot like that time. The situation is a lot like the last one. What did they do last time? Well, they just went to where Jesus was sleeping, woke him up. He got up, calmed the waves and the, the sea, and everything was good. Oh, but wait. This time isn't like last time. Because Jesus isn't asleep here. In fact, he isn't anywhere near here. He's still back on shore. We're out here all alone. So now what do they do? And this is what we're talking about when we say God is not formulaic. God doesn't always answer the same situation the same exact way every time. Pretty much the same situation the disciples find themselves in. However, God is about to answer it very differently. Be very wary if you start thinking you got God figured out. I know how he's going to do this. I know when he's going to do this. He may decide to resolve the exact same situation entirely different than the last time. Or he may resolve your situation very differently than somebody else's exact same situation. We all know that God heals some people miraculously. And others, he gives grace to endure the sickness. He doesn't always answer the same way. He may also decide that the way you're asking for a need to be met is not the best way to do it. And isn't that just frustrating? God says, nah, I'm going to do it this way. When I was uh, still new in church, I thought I had something figured out. I knew that if God would heal my mom, that would get my dad into church. That would just blow his socks off, and that would, that would clear the way. He would listen then. My mom had uh, multiple sclerosis, real bad. But uh, she was bedridden, uh, the whole shebang. But... Uh, so I went in, I fasted for three days, prayed, and I went in, and I did like the disciples did, like the apostles did in the book of Acts. I picked her up out of bed, and I claimed her healing. Well, guess what? Nothing happened. Nothing. I had a good prayer, but uh, she was still bedridden. And I was devastated. I was still new in church. I didn't. That's what they did. That must be how, how you do it. I didn't understand. God had different plans. He had different ideas. Anyway, my dad still got into church. But uh, it was from an entirely different route. But the point is this. We pray for needs. We pray for healings. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for all kinds of things, legitimate things. We're in the middle of a situation. God, get me out of this. 
God, do something in this situation. But God has this great big picture, you see. This overall plan. The strategic outlook. And all we have is a very small tactical look for you military guys. That's all we get a lot of times. And uh, so we have to trust in the commander, the general, who has the big picture to make sure everything lines up. And from our perspective, it doesn't always look right. From our perspective, sometimes it looks dead wrong. This can't be right. Why do I have to stay here? Why do I have to keep going through this? Why do I have to endure that? Brother so-and-so, you just took him right out. He prayed and it's all gone. We'll get into that too later. But God answers how he wants to answer. And it's always the right answer. And it's always the right time. God is sovereign. He answers your prayers one way and mine another. And that's good. That's all right. God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Because he's sovereign. He's God, folks. He's God. I don't want his job. I want him to stay God. I don't want to call the shots. Can you imagine that? I can't. That would be horrible. He gives to you and asks me to give to him. Or vice versa. What's up with that? God knows. And someday I'll know. Might be, I might be in glory. But someday I'll, ha- I'll, I'll get it. I'll understand. God answered my prayer just like I wanted. He answered yours in a way that left you confused or frustrated. But he's still God, and he's still good, and he still loves all of us equally. Praise God. This situation would have made a great encore for Jesus' miracle in Mark chapter 4. But Jesus was a few, few furlongs away right now, at least as far as the disciples knew. The disciples were working furiously just to keep the boat from capsizing. I can imagine the fishermen were nervous enough. The tax collector and the others, they were probably very nervous. How do you bail out a boat when mere bucket loads are going out while great waves keep crashing in? The math just doesn't work there, folks. They were in the middle of a life-threatening situation, and Jesus was nowhere to be found. We read a parallel account in Mark chapter 6, verse, uh, starting, well, Mark chapter 6, but in verse 48, it says this, And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. That very first part, he saw them toiling. I want that to sink in for just a moment. The disciples had no clue where Jesus was. They couldn't see Jesus. They were busy trying to keep the boat from sinking. All their attention was wrapped up in the moment. The situation at hand. 
They couldn't see Jesus anywhere, but Jesus saw them. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He was watching the entire time. He saw them when they were calmly cruising along, and he saw them when they were fighting for their lives. The disciples had no idea Jesus knew anything about what they were going through. But Jesus saw everything. He was right there. Remember that, folks. Let it sink in. When you can't see Jesus, when you can't feel him, when you're in the middle of a situation and everything's blowing up around you, he's there. You may not feel him. You may not think he's there, but he's right there. He's right there. He's faithful, and he's as close as the mention of his name. Storms on the Sea of Galilee birth in a moment. When the cold weather from the mountains mixes with the warm weather from the water, they form squalls and have claimed the lives of even the most seasoned seafarers, mostly because they form completely without warning. They just, boom, they're right there. No warning at all. There's often no indication to warn sailors before the storm hits. Wouldn't it be nice if there were, though? Wouldn't it be nice if the storms would announce themselves first? Wouldn't life be so much grander if these situations that slap us up the side of the head would give an advanced warning? Give us a chance to get ready. Give us some time to prepare. Wouldn't that be awesome? But life doesn't always work that way, does it? If we knew the storm was coming, we could get the boat to shore, lash it down, get some supplies ready, batten down the hatches, and wait it out. Okay, we're ready. Come on. But it hits us when we're not ready. It hits us when we least expect it. In life, there are so many events and situations that are completely outside of our control, and any one of these can, without warning, come crashing down on us. Just a few of these situations off the top of my head. War could be declared and the draft instituted. There's a situation completely outside of a lot of people's control. Many of us are, we'll just say not eligible anymore. (laughs) But some are. Some are still eligible. That would completely change the trajectory of someone's life. Any number of world events could greatly impact our already fragile economy for the worse. The way our economy is right now, we're teetering on a razor's edge, folks. Anything significant happens and it comes crashing down. I mean, again, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not doom and gloom, but I'm just, I'm just looking at the numbers, folks. It's not good. If that's where your hope is, uh, good luck, friend. I hope it works out. Our lives are one sickness or one accident away from being changed forever. And that comes just like that. Driving down the road, cool and calm as can be, and you get T-boned by a drunk driver. You can walk away from that paralyzed, in a coma, worse or better. But it's going to change your life. We don't, we can't see these things coming. But Jesus can, and Jesus does. 
That's why we keep our hand in His, folks. That's why we let Him order our steps aright. Amen. Because He sees the future. He already knows what's going to happen before it does. He declares the end from the beginning. He's not surprised. He's not caught unawares. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows why it's happening. He knows when it starts and when it's going to stop. He knows everything about that situation. You don't know. You don't have a clue. But he knows everything about it. So why wouldn't we just trust in him? He may share some details with you or he may keep it all completely to himself. Doesn't matter. He knows. He has the power to take care of it. He has the authority to take care of it. So let him. Let him take care of it. When the storm hits, do what the disciples did. Look for Jesus. He's the one that can make everything right again. Back to the disciples. They were trying desperately to get the boat to shore, and then they saw something horrifying. The silhouette of a man walking on the waves. Living people don't walk on the water. So this must be a ghost. Just when we thought things couldn't get any worse. Now a ghost is coming up to us. Life just got worse. How about that? When you're in the middle of a situation, and you think, this is it. I'm, I'm at bottom. Maybe, maybe not. One guy said, it could always get worse, <laughs> Maybe you know who that guy is. It always can. It can always get better, too. It appears, at least to me, they were more afraid of the ghost than they were of the storm. Mark 6 and 50 says this, They all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Now, let me tell you something, folks. When Jesus comes up to you in the middle of your storm and says, I'm here, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's taken care of now. It's done. As far as I'm concerned, it's done. I'm still in it. I still have to endure some things, maybe. But Jesus has it now. It's in his hands now. He's going to take care of it. I'm done. My part's over. I'm just going to trust in Him. Praise God. And He's going to take care of it. Jesus showed up at their boat. When He did, He calmed their fears that He was a ghost. But He did so much more than that. He did a whole lot more than that, folks. He wasn't simply Jesus, the one they'd been traveling with. He wasn't simply Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus wasn't saying to the disciples, read the name tag, boys, it's me, Jesus. That's not what he was saying. While the King James Version says, it is I, be not afraid, the truest translation of this verse is, I am, be not afraid. That takes on a whole different meaning, folks. That's an entirely different context. Jesus is saying that he's the God of the Old Testament, manifest in the flesh. He was identifying himself as the God who spoke to Moses as the I Am, or Jehovah, the Jehovah Jireh who provided a ram for Abraham to sacrifice. 
the Jehovah Rapha who healed the Israelites of their deadly diseases, the Jehovah Nisi who fought for Israel against their enemies, the Jehovah Shalom who gave Gideon peace when he faced over 120,000 ruthless, relentless soldiers, the Jehovah Sabaoth who stands at the helm of all of heaven's armies, the Jehovah Reha who shepherds his sheep to safety. That Jehovah was standing in the wind on the waves that threatened their very lives. Praise God. And when he stands at your waves, when he stands at the edge of your boat, folks, that's why I'm saying it's all, it's done. It's taken care of. It's, it's out of my hands now. I don't have to worry about it. Jesus has it. So why did Jesus choose to reveal himself in this way to the disciples at this particular time and place? This is where I feel like I have a word for somebody here today. I don't know who. But for somebody, the reason he did is because there's revelation in the storm. There's revelation in the storm, folks. God bestows upon you things you can only receive in the midst of the storm. You want to get closer to God? Go through the storm. You want greater revelation of who he is? you got to go through the storm. Need power over sin? Power to witness? Go through the storm. Strongholds need to be broken in your life? you got to go through the storm. What you need, folks, what you're searching for, whoever I'm speaking to, it's in the storm. But the storm's hard. I've been here so long. It's it's overwhelming sometimes. Just hold on. Folks, Jesus is there. He's been there. And you've got you got something coming at the end of it. God wants to bestow a blessing upon you at the end of it. He wants to give revelation to you at the end of it. He wants to give you an answer that you've been looking for at the end of it. But you can't, you can't skirt it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through. That's the purpose of God. You've got to go through the storm. Jesus is walking with you. Just stay holding on to him. Hold on to him. Jesus fed the 5,000 on a warm, serene mountaintop. But he revealed himself as the I am to his disciples in the middle of a storm. Amen. There are people, God loves everybody the same. We know that. Scripture teaches that. He doesn't love you any more than he loves me and vice versa. But there are people he trusts more. And people that he trusts less. Who does he trust more? People that have endured with him. People that have walked with him. People that have proven themselves. Through test and through trial and through circumstance and through situation. When I was a new convert, what could he trust me with? Could he trust me with a great big situation? I don't know. I have to surmise no, because I didn't really get any great big situations. Can we trust a a new baby with responsibility? Feed yourself. Go get a job. Pay for it yourself. Of course not. Jesus fed the 5,000 on the calm, serene mountaintop. That's all they could do with them. They weren't even willing to sacrifice a little food for the greater good. 
disciples had been through some stuff with him. He trusted them with more. And that's why God could take them through the storm. So that he could reveal something. Something that's so powerful. Something so revelatory. That's the only place he could do it. When I, uh, I haven't been on a uh, cruise line or anything like that. I've been on a decent-sized boat, but nothing real big. Nothing like you have, Brother Shepherd. <laughs> Not even close. But in every boat, you know, you're required to have a, a life preserver of some kind. Most areas, that I think, anyway. Uh, and I, I, I can swim. I can swim just fine, so I really don't pay too much attention to it. I don't, uh, if, I, if I got on a cruise line, I wouldn't be, maybe they go through that, but I wouldn't be looking, okay, where's the, where's the life rafts? Where's the life preservers? I wouldn't really worry about it. If I passed by them, I probably wouldn't even notice them. But if the ship were sinking and I was floating in the middle of the ocean, I'd see that thing a long ways off. That's where my focus would be. And I'd devote everything, every ounce of energy I had to get to that thing. Same thing goes with our Christian walk. When things are going great, things are fine, money's in the account, food's on the table, promotions are coming left and right. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. But I don't really need him right now. You do need him but you feel like you don't. But, when God takes some of that away, and God puts you in a different circumstance, and you're floating in the middle of the ocean, now you're looking for Jesus. And when you see him, you're going to devote every ounce of energy you can to get to him. It's a different perspective, folks. Jesus can get my attention so much easier and so much more completely when all of those distractions are gone. Amen. That's when Jesus can start to talk with me. That's when Jesus can start revealing things to me. When we couple Matthew's account of this story with John's, we have a more complete picture of what happened on that stormy sea of Galilee. When Peter sees Jesus and hears the revelation of who he is, find this in Matthew's account, he asked to walk on the water with him. Jesus tells him to come, so Peter does. Swings his feet over the boat, steps onto the water, and starts a-walking. And he does well, so long as his attention stays fixed on Jesus. I've told you this story before. Uh, I noticed this recently bike riding, riding my bike, and there'd be a stick or a twig or a rock or something in the middle there, and I try to avoid it. It's a small thing. For some reason, I could never avoid it. I'd always end up hitting it. Well, I finally figured out why, because I kept looking at it. Wherever I'm looking, that's where I'm going. 
All I had to do was look at something else. It was easy. I'd never, I never hit anything else after that. Where your attention is focused, folks, that's where you're walking. That's where you're walking. You put your attention on something else, you're walking in a different direction now. If your attention stays fixed on Jesus, you're walking toward Jesus. If it starts to get fixed on something else, we're not walking toward Jesus anymore. We're walking towards someone or something else. As soon as Peter gets distracted, he removes his attention from Jesus and puts it on the storm, he begins to sink. What we're focused on is where our faith is going to be. That becomes magnified. If I stay focused on Jesus, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. If I stay focused on my problem, my problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, Jesus gets so small in your life that there's nothing he can do for you. You've got to stay focused on Jesus. Make him bigger. Magnify him. Jesus will be able to do anything you need. Now, we know objectively that he doesn't get any bigger. He's infinitely big. But in your life, in your mind, he can be magnified or he can start to shrink. He can become effectually powerless if you stay focused on problems. Get your eyes off the problem. Get it on Jesus. Peter begins to sink, but Jesus reached out and saved him. They both board the boat. The storm calms. Once again, he demonstrates his absolute power and authority over the storm, over all of creation, because he is the I Am. We see that in Peter's life, before Jesus came, his big fear, his big concern was The storm, the waves, crashing into the boat, threatening to sink the boat. They couldn't bail the water out fast enough. When Jesus comes, not only does his fear go away, but he is able to walk on that thing that he feared. He is able to take authority over it. He is able to step on it, to step on the neck of his enemy, as it were. Walked all over that thing that he was once afraid of. And we see Jesus, well, he just starts there. Jesus walks on everything that threatens us, that that we're afraid of, that intimidates us. He's not intimidated or threatened by anyone or anything. He just walks all over it. And he wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to walk on those things that did intimidate us, that did cause us to fear. He does. And through Jesus, we can. Through Jesus, we should. Dare I say it, that's your birthright. It's your birthright. It's who you are now. You're not subject to those things anymore. They are subject to you through the name of Jesus Christ. And I know I'm a broken record on this. I get it. But we've got to know who we are in Jesus. We've got to know. 
We've got to believe it. We've got to walk in that truth that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And I'm going to keep saying it until me and everyone else is doing it. I'm going to keep saying it. You know, the, uh, the Old Testament prophets, <laughs> they didn't have a lot of variation in their message to Israel. It always seemed to be the same old stuff. Don't you get tired of... I had a conversation with someone about this. Several of you have, have talked to me about this. We get the same old stuff all the time. I get it. There are plenty of things I want to talk about. There are plenty of things I'd rather say. But I can't. I'm not authorized to say just whatever I want. Believe me. I have a whole list of things that I would love to talk about. But all I can do is say what God wants as as best as I can figure. The Old Testament prophets, they were a broken record too. It didn't work for Israel. It didn't work. They still didn't listen. They still did what they wanted to do. And that's our purview, folks. That's that's the gift we've been given. We can do what we want with what Jesus bestows. We can. But my advice, if you'll receive it, is to do what Jesus says to do. At least in my life, that has always worked out for me. Always. Every time I've tried to do something different, it has not worked out for me. So, at least for me, anyway, I'm going to do what Jesus says to the best of my ability. Because it's just, it's so much easier. Can we talk about it from a pragmatic perspective? It's just easier. I've tried beating my head against a brick wall. The brick wall seems to always win. <clears throat> so, Jesus is the I am. Whatever situation we face, he has authority over it, and he'll give you authority over it. Jesus walks on what worries us. He walks on the doctor's diagnosis. He walks on the bills we cannot pay. He walks on the fear of being forgotten. Whatever it is you're facing, whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, Jesus has power over all of these. And that means we have power over all of these. Through the name of Jesus Christ. The storm is real. The storm is real, folks. It's not some illusion. We're actually in the middle of something. But Jesus has power over the storm. He can, at will, calm the storm and remove that situation in our lives. Or he can allow the storm to continue for whatever purpose he has. The prayer of a mature Christian ought not be, God, get me out of this. It ought to be, what do I need to learn? How do I need to grow? For this storm to pass. 
But even if he allows the storm to continue, he's going to be with us in the midst of it. And if he doesn't calm the storm, he can most certainly calm us. Either way, the I am is with us. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so we don't have to be afraid of anything ever again. In conclusion, situations in life can slam us without warning. The sudden death of a loved one, a job loss, an automobile accident, a serious and prolonged illness, and many, many others. In these times, it's sometimes difficult to see where Jesus is. We think he can't possibly be in the middle of all this, but he is there, right in the midst of it alongside you. The I am that created all things stands ready to move heaven and earth to help you. Don't run from Jesus or shake your fist in his face. Look for him. He'll be right there. Look to him. Lean on him. He'll hold you, and he'll hold you up. Slip your hand in his and trust he knows where you are and that he will, in his perfect time, get you through the storm. Let's all stand. Oh, Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your mercy and for your compassion and for your grace to usward. I am so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you loved us when we were unlovable, that you called us when we were a long ways off, that you picked us up, you cleaned us off, you put us on our high place. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you now. We thank you for that we have received here today. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would continue to bless your people in the remainder of our service together, that you would move mightily and wondrously through your servant, that your name would be glorified in our midst. And these things we pray in Jesus' name.